1: Hello and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the sports reporter at Think Progress, and I will be your host today. Joining me are, oh, well, two of my favorite four co hosts. <laughs> I have to say, Shireen Ahmed, the cat lover, my favorite optimist up in Toronto, Canada. Hi, Shireen. Good morning. And joining me from Pennsylvania is Miss On the Ball herself, the assistant professor of history and gender and sexuality studies at Penn State, Amira Rose Davis. Amira, how are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. You know, really on top of things, apparently, this morning. So that's <laughs> great. <laughs> it's well,
2: Game we- of Thrones Day. Sorry, Ugh. that's my what's good. I'm, I ruined it. Keep going. <laughs>
1: Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I can't contain my
2: excitement.
1: (laughs) I know, and I am the loser who has literally never watched a single single of Game of Thrones, so I uh, am feeling very out of it today. But anyways, look, we have a really exciting show for you today. Whether or not you like Game of Thrones, you will enjoy this show, I promise. We are going to dive into white allyship in related to the Kyle Corver Players' Tribune essay that went viral this week. We're also going to talk about marketing of female athletes in women's sports leagues. There's been some stuff in the National Women's Soccer League and the WNBA lately that have piqued our interest and we want to kind of dive into and, and have a broader discussion about. How do we do this properly? And we also have a very exciting interview. Our own Jessica Luther interviews Nancy Schwartzman, director of the film Roll, Red, Roll, a documentary about the 2012 sexual assault case in Steubenville, Ohio. So definitely stay tuned for that. But first of all, uh, Shireen, I have a question for you. (laughs) Yes, Lindsay. (laughs) What? happened to Toronto
0: yesterday in the playoffs. <laughs> oh god. Nazem Beautiful. Things I can't happen
2: to I them. Can't.
0: Okay, relax. Le- relax 4 one. Okay? Okay, so let me just say this <laughs> you say because that because like I don't want a bad people score. <laughs> Like it's about I mean like the first game. So <laughs> uh, here's the thing. I don't want people to misunderstand. The only Toronto team in hockey that I care about is the Furies of the CWHL. So let's just be really clear. I'm not a Leafs fan. She's a but space. by which is, um, which is even but words. if I' perhaps which is beautiful and glorious and Amira's getting that jersey for her birthday right. so I think the thing is is that we have to understand that because I'm Canadian I sort of want to root for the last Canadian team but I'm very happy sitting back and watching these two teams just pummel each other. So that's where I am. Also, Nazem Kadri cross-checking because he's frustrated is very typical Nazem Qadri. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about Shreen, that. I I
1: love you, but I'm talking about the Raptors. <laughs> Who <laughs> lost <laughs> to the Orlando Magic yesterday.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, uh, we're oh, we're sorry, totally gonna... in hockey mode. <laughs> Oh, my God. This is amazing. I thought you were talking about the Leafs.
1: I oh, have no gosh. idea what's happening in the NHL playoffs. Yeah, I, I thought you were talking you. about
0: the Leafs, too, because I was
2: bragging about the Bruins beating them. I know. I was
1: like, we're having completely different conversations here. <laughs> it's I play want to playoff talk about season. How did the Orlando season? Magic beat the Toronto
0: Raptors? Oh, yes. okay. So I can just really quickly on that. My son, Kawhi Leonard, has to do all the work. And I, Kyle Lowry just had a bad night. He didn't get a single shot. So I'm really sad about that because it's a little bit embarrassing. It's the I don't know. Orlando I'm magic. A... Okay, Lindsay, Sorry. I understand. All right. <laughs> They can't be perfect. They cannot be perfect. And they pretty much are. So they were allowed to have one bad game in the playoffs, and they chose it to make their first.
1: All right. All right. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Amira, how are you feeling? We will know the outcome of this Celtics Pacers game by the time this airs. We do not know now the result of game one. How are, how are you feeling? Well, I would <laughs> rather
2: talk about hockey.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I've
2: been ignoring the Celtics because they uh, have been so frustrating. So insanely frustrating to watch this season um, that I'm just like telling myself I'm not invested Whatever happens today, <laughs> the first game happens, whatever happens in this first round happens. I'm totally all in on the Bruins right
1: now. <laughs> well, I know how well it usually works out for you to be Zen. So I'm excited. I know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. This time of year is, you know, it's this time of year where like play like I love when we get both playoffs because uh NHL playoffs are like the best they're so intense and and NBA playoffs are you know full of fun and drama so it's a really fun time of year but I have to be honest y'all you know coming off a World Series win and a Super Bowl win everything else is just like cherry on top at this point so it helps a little bit with my zen
0: that didn't help me with I my zen that. <laughs> I no. I appreciate Amira's, you know, coming off a World Series win. I get that. I'm also just waiting to see what... I'm not going to speak too quick about the Leafs winning the series because, like, I'm not emotionally invested. I'm emotionally invested in the Bruins losing, yes. But I think that in terms of basketball, it's a bit early, especially since my team choked last night and when we had a bit of a lead, so... I don't know. I don't want to draw too attention to the negativity around the Raptors cuz Kwai needs really really solid energy. And you're in a positivity
1: stream, so that
0: makes sense. Uh, I am like <laughs> I also want to mention that Serge Ibaka did release What's for Dinner. His like show that he brings people to his home and cooks for them, which is literally my dream to be on. And I've, you know, I know I love you Tim Duncan and I always will, but I've kind of focused a little bit of my energy of reaching out to Serge Ibaka now because I need to be on uh, that I show. I think we
1: should definitely start a burn it all down campaign. I would love to see yeah, stream so. on that. And well, I do have to say, we do have to say that the Spurs did win last night. So while we were sleeping, or while I was sleeping at least, the game starts at 10:30 p.m. Eastern, which is a crime, <laughs> in my opinion. Anyways, all right. We'll keep you posted. We got to, we'll have to check in next week and see how our Boston and Toronto co-hosts <laughs> are doing. For now, let's get this episode started. All right, this week in the Players Tribune, NBA player Kyle Korver wrote an essay that, that went pretty viral about his white privilege. Shireen, you want to get us started here?
0: Thanks so much, Lindsay. So, if you hadn't seen it, Utah jazz player Kyle Korver actually wrote a beautiful piece, as Lindsay said, in the Players Tribune. Now, I had a lot of feelings about this, and I, we're going to sort of talk about it, and I'm really glad as well that. Amir is here so we can sort of have this conversation from different perspectives. And the thing that I wanted to say was, I just wanted to start with a quote from his piece. Quote, I have to continue to educate myself on the history of racism in America. I have to listen. As a white man, I have to hold my fellow white men accountable. We all have to hold each other accountable. And then to follow up with this, Kyle Korver actually was part of a roundtable on camera with three of his colleagues, Thabo Safalosha, Ekpe Uda, and Georges Niang. And I think that this was really, it was really important and harrowing to watch as well after reading. Because you can tell a lot from someone in terms of their body language, in terms of what they're, the way that they think. And I saw Kyle Korver being silent a lot in this round table which is really important and for me that's very much the crux of what this piece was about was listening and understanding and he also said in the, the follow-up which is available via the Players' Tribune website is that he, part of his privilege is being able to check in and check out of the conversation when he wants to and that was really harrowing for me to read, it sort of hit me. And I was like, wow, this is definitely a privilege. You don't even have to talk about racism if you don't want to. And the entire scope of his piece was very specifically on privilege, but not just basic, I'm privileged, blah, blah, blah. It was very much about allyship and what can I do? And he started with the fact that he can actually listen, which was very, very important because a lot of people, y'all don't get that even. Um, Like, pass the mic. I've heard people, you know, getting invited to panels where they shouldn't be, that they're profiting off of communities when they shouldn't be. It's very simple to know what you should not do in addition to what you should do to be an ally to people of color and athletes of color in this case. So, I mean, and it was very much about also... The responses to him, like LeBron James, Jeremy Lin, way Draymond Green, and then even coach Steve Kerr had retweeted what he said, his piece, and said, this is very, you know, we're very appreciative of this. And this is something that I think we need to, is that the surprise and the delight and the joy of other players, because they're not used to hearing something like this. And that's what struck me. And I'm not being negative here. I'm being real. Like, I look at the responses from people that are genuinely so moved you know, and his piece was very much that, that he had put a lot of thought into it. I don't think it could have come at a better time. I mean, I know a little bit about the franchise and we can get into this in a round table. But for me, it wasn't only the piece, it was a reaction that it emitted. And further to that, I want to see action emitted now. And I'll leave it there for us to move on.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. When the piece came out, I think, I read it, I started it like many black people, especially black people who cover sports did with the kind of eye skeptical reading. I was like, well, we'll see what this gets into. And you know, at the beginning you're like, hmm, okay. And then it just was good. It was surprisingly good because you usually don't see this level of depth. And what I mean by depth is that he's done introspection. What I mean by depth is he's done the reading. There's a point in the piece, right, where he gives statistics to talk about what racism looks like institutionalized, right? He talks about incarceration. He talks about Black unemployment rates. He talks about um, the kind of racial uh, aspect of drug charges and the fact that Black imprisonment rates for drug charges is six times higher, And he talks about uh, wealth inequality. So one of the things that happened as I read this piece is I was just more and more appreciative of the introspection and the depth and the time and the care in what I felt as a genuine sincerity behind it. I also immediately thought of my friend Dave Leonard, DJ, shout out to your work, uh, his latest book, Playing Well White talks a lot about white privilege in the world of sports and one of the things that DJ says a lot is that a lot of times league lacks this they lack outspoken white players right to come and stand up like it it becomes a burden of black players constantly in these predominantly black leagues but even in leagues like baseball right you don't have white players really speaking out like this on their own volition and so I can't understand, understate the importance and the rarity of that. But the thing to me that really jumped out at me that kind of pushed this piece over the edge for me was that he had a very keen awareness of the symbolic kind of messages and stuff that are read on his body and what it means to be one of few white players in the predominantly black league. And how people, whether they're in Utah or fans generally, can seize upon that and try to use him to further their own narratives. He says in the piece, quote, I know I'm in a strange position as one of the more recognized white players in the NBA. It's a position that comes with a lot of interesting undertones. It's a position that makes me a symbol for a lot of things, for a lot of people, often people who don't know anything about me. And then he goes on to basically say, Let me tell you something about me. And he says, you know, I believe it's the responsibility of anyone on the privilege end of inequalities to make it right. Know that I believe that. If you're wearing my jersey at a game, know that about me. If you're planning to buy my jersey, know that about me. If you're following on social media, know that about me. If you're coming to Jazz Games and rooting for me, know that about me. If you're claiming my name, my likeness for your own cause in any way, know that about me because I believe this matters. And I think that that to me is what really jumped out. Is the ability to say Not only am I showing you my introspection Doing the reading all this stuff But I'm also sending a message to people who want To use me the same way they might use A Wes Welker when he was playing Or Julian Edelman, like these scrappy You know, white receivers Like What happens to fans Who seize on them to make them The kind of positive foils To black players in the league Who want to hold them up as You know, the standard Or an example of calmness or whatever they want to project onto their bodies, right? Who want to take people like Tom Brady and his intensity on the sideline and assign it positive values when somebody like OBJ displaying the same things have negative values. He's sending a message to everybody who would read into their own kind of racial insecurities onto him. And he's saying, don't, I will not be, you know, a stand in that. I will not be a symbol for that. And I won't be a symbol for white supremacy is essentially what he's saying. And that really, to me, was one of the biggest takeaways for me, one of the biggest moves I applauded him for.
1: I completely agree that that stuck out to me. And it was later in the essay. And it was, like you said, Amir, one of those moments where it just kind of took the entire Piece to the next level, right? Like, it, throughout the piece, it almost kept building on his own introspection. And that's something that was – you just don't see that often. I think it's, it's tough because it's a fine line between speaking up and amplifying other voices and being an ally – That is behind the cause versus being an ally who is uh, taking up space, right, and (laughs) drowning out others and doing taking accolades that really aren't for you. And I think that that's it's a fine line. I think Kyle Korver deserved a lot of the praise that he got uh, this week for the piece because it was a good piece, but I also think that. It's just frustrating that his voice on this will carry so much farther than other voices. At the same time, it is a reality. So if he's not using his voice, then that is almost, I mean, that's complicity, right? Silence in this age is complicity. So it can be a fine line. And I've, you know, I've been, you know, reminded this week of the praise in the past that. I've the acknowledgement I've given to white female athletes who have joined in advocacy and the pushback I've gotten at times for highlighting their work and the introspection that I've done there. I remember when Lindsay Whalen retired, I pointed out that she was one of the first, she was the first white player really to stand up. Like she stood on the stage alongside three of her black teammates wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts and with the Minnesota Lynx and one of the responses to those tweets was, "Well, why are you giving her this attention, right? When it was the black players who were doing the most of the work?" And I agreed with that at the same time. I did say, "Well, this is just because she's retiring that you know I'm highlighting this." But I, you know, I think it's it's a really fine line. And I'm definitely, you know, defer to you guys on where where that line can could be. I know, Shereen, you want to talk about like how do we push this forward?"
0: Well I mean that's part of it definitely I think that we talked about the we mentioned the franchise itself and Gail Miller came out owner of the Utah Jazz and sort of said that and she's so shown a solidarity with the athletes before because she's actually recently been on Ekbe Uda's What Book Did You Read? He has a, of a show an online show called What Book Did You Read? He has his own book club like it's pretty amazing so she was actually on his show talking about her book and it was really interesting because he didn't introduce her as the owner of the Utah Jazz he just interviewed her as an author so it was just a really cute moment so anyways she had come out and said what kind of culture she wants and she does and think it's a racist culture and they're going to work towards. She said this as an owner, and I've never seen this before. Like, I'm still coming back and reeling from, like, shady owners in the past that use the N-word all over the place. So this is an NBA owner who is coming out and talking about this, the conversations that they're having in their locker room. And you can tell that Kyle Korver and other players are listening, especially when he says the idea of, like, what to do. And he says, as and I quote in his piece, you would think that if people say, I don't see color or don't say anything, that would help, but in fact, it's the opposite. And he's right. Silence becomes complicity. And he touched on that. I know so many people, white people who are just like, if I don't say anything, if I don't you know, if I don't say those racist things, I'm good. No, you're not good, because we're not that that bar is too low. And this is something that really I was reflecting on that he was saying. And just to jump from that to my friend Morgan Campbell of the Toronto Star wrote a piece and he was inspired sort of by what Bomani Jones said on his show that said, Oh, you know, all these people retweeting it. Are they going to actually just retweet it or are they actually going to try and live some of the stuff that Corver said? And for me, that is key. This is something that I want to emphasize. It's great that you retweeted it. It's great that you shouted him out because, you know, I've learned from this show to give people chances to move forward and have their, their journey. And I really have learned on this show from you guys, particularly you and Mary, you talked about it, someone's journey, to give him that I'm not giving out for giving out unnecessary cookies, but this guy deserves a biscuit for sure. But what, I, what I'm saying is that there needs to be more. It's not good enough because I felt when I read this and when I watched that interview, this man was sincere about what he was saying. And he understands that retweeting him is not enough. There's more that is required. And he has an expectation of people now and wants to hold them accountable. And this is what I was going to say. What the fuck is next? Y'all, what is next? Do it. And I'm talking to white people. What are you going to do now? You can't just read this and be like, this was great. I moved. We need to change. You need to be the change. You need to facilitate the change.
2: Yeah. I think that, you know, points that both of you are making about a, how generally the bar is very low, you can basically step over it. And, you know, Lindsay's point about disproportionate fanfare, I think, is really valid. And to just for my ending thoughts, you know, about action, it reminds me generally when we have conversations in this country about race or race whatever, I feel like we have them in a very our direction is is misshapen. A lot of times we get internal discussions that is, you know, let's help inner cities let's help black people whatever did da, da, it da. And it reminds me of stokely carmichael and a long history of people saying no like don't that's not the work that needs to be done like go talk to other white people Right there's a great (laughs) quote Stokely Carmichael has when he's talking about students coming from northern universities down to Mississippi to help solve racism, and he's saying, "Don't come to Mississippi to try to solve our problems. Like go to Berkeley, (laughs) solve your problems there." Right, like that's. Like we're not, we're not the ones with the issues. Like y'all have to go talk to each other, to other players in the league, to family members, whatever. And it's hard conversations for sure. But I think that, you know, perhaps thinking about action, even like subtle little steps, which is, what does it look like if the burden of explaining racism, right, is, is not on the black players? Like, what does it look like if, white players like Cover can, can can get in front of it and be the people doing some of this emotional labor. You know, me and Shereen talked about emotional labor in our Patreon on um, the hot take last month called Bishes Be Laboring. Check it out. Um, but I think there's a great deal of labor that goes on to it. And so I guess when I think about action, when I think about the points you raised, when I think about all that kind of emotional labor, I so said what does it look like if Black players black people in general don't have to do this distraction of racism and explain themselves over and over what does it look like if one of the action steps next is for white players like Cover to do some of that emotional labor work, to explain and to handle and to be the kind of first shields of the work that comes with you know combating white supremacy
1: I think that's so important. And one of the best lessons I've ever gotten on white allyship came from a high schooler. Well, I guess he was right after high school. But I went to to profile a team in Seattle, a, a high school football team that had all taken a knee for an entire year after Colin Kaepernick. And I remember talking to one of the white players, and he said kind of going into that moment um, when they were all about to take a knee, he didn't really understand. He didn't know exactly what he was going to do. He was nervous about it. And then he said in that moment when the player in front of me, my teammate, my brother, the guy I played with for four years, when he took a knee, I knew that even though I didn't fully understand right this second, everything I knew that if it meant enough for him to take a knee, that it meant enough for me to take a knee. And so that's why he took a knee. And after he took a knee, he he listened and he learned and he became an advocate and he, you know, b- became a voice. Shereen? Speaking
0: of things, speaking of what, you know, people can do specifically, I wrote a piece with Shakia Taylor, who's been on the show for the Shadow League, talking about that specifically. And this whole thing is not only for athletes, Everybody can learn from this. And yes, I'm looking at you, Mayonnaise Factory, sports media industry. This has a lot to do and it can be in any space, workspace, personal space. Go tall to academia. Absolutely. It can be in the arts. It can be anywhere. And what we're talking about you know, goes beyond just the basketball court, it goes into life. And that's something else that's really important. And in, in terms of, and white women, I'm not letting off the hook here, you don't need to fall behind, you cannot fall behind. I'm a woman, ergo, I suffer. We all suffer. Women of color suffer doubly and triply, if you know, they come from, you know, queer backgrounds, because there's those layers, you have to understand that. And if One of the most important things I've ever written is this piece with Shakia, because it literally is like, it doesn't take much for you to look outside yourself. That's where it has to start. And there's this
2: great, great quote by Toni Morrison. Uh, that I think of often, and it says, "Quote the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language, and you spend twenty years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdom, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing."
1: All right. For our interview this week, Jessica Luther interviews Nancy Schwartzman, director of the film Roll Red Roll, a documentary about the 2012 sexual assault case in Steubenville, Ohio, that involved multiple members of the high school football team. They talk about the wide range of community response to the case, how Schwartzman decided on the framing for the film, the reaction to it, and whether this is a football story.
3: I'm happy to welcome Nancy Schwartzman to Burn It All Down today. Nancy is a film director, producer, and media strategist who uses storytelling and technology to create safer communities for women and girls. She is the director of a new documentary titled Roll, Red, Roll, which is an award-winning film about rape culture in a small Ohio town called Steubenville. Perhaps you've heard of it. Even if you have, even if you think you understand what happened there in 2012, this documentary is must-see viewing. Thanks for being on the show, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Can you start by giving us a brief explainer about the film, a little synopsis or a teaser for our listeners? Sure. Roll Red Roll, we call it a true crime thriller
4: that goes beyond the headlines to investigate the boys will be boys culture that was fueled by social media that enabled this viral rape case to happen.
3: There will be people listening who maybe maybe they've heard Steubenville like they have a sense of it, but like, what happened in 2012?
4: Essentially, Steubenville has a really, really strong football team. It's a small town in eastern Ohio, but they have one of the top football teams in the state. And Ohio loves its football. <laughs> yeah, <And laughs> this town—it's an old steel town—really, really invests in its players and. This, you know, in some ways, there's nothing unusual, unfortunately, about sexual assaults with teenagers. But what happened here, it was documented on social media. It was right at the beginning, social media being sort of everywhere and kids just using it, but without the awareness that it's actually public and not private. What was horrifying about the case was there were so much documentation of the crime, of laughing about it, of sharing, of retweeting, of, of victim blaming. And YouTube video was made that went viral laughing about it. So what the story enabled me to do as a filmmaker was really look at the behavior of perpetrators, bystanders, and witnesses, because it was all documented live on social media. The other piece that's amazing is there were all these factors that enabled this story to break wide open and go viral. Mm -hmm. There was a amateur crime blogger, Alexandria Goddard, who happens to be sort of an expert in social media. So she read that two football players had been arrested. And her first thought was like, she knows Steubenville. She used to live there. Her first thought was, oh man, if they got arrested, it must be bad because it had been such a culture where kids, especially the football team, could get away with anything. So she went to the roster, the high school roster's website, and pulled up all the names of the players and started tracking their social media. And what she saw there was horrifying. It was just so blatant, so public, and she archived and captured it all. And then later, as you know, social media posts were disappearing, she had kept them. She went to the police to try to get them to pay attention. And what I found fascinating as a filmmaker was this was really looking at a cultural problem. So whether the social media is criminal evidence or not, it's evidence of this larger rape culture.
3: That's so interesting. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this because I wanted to ask you about how you made the film, choices that you made and and what you presented. Because there's a point somewhere towards the middle of the film where you play a long, unedited clip of that video you just mentioned of these high school boys callously joking about rape that they themselves made. The victim isn't really in this film outside of there's some blurred images of her and what people say about her. There's no real guiding narrator No one telling us like how to feel or think about a lot of this. Like I felt like it was simply presented and like we're left to our own sort of emotional response to that. How did you decide how you wanted to tell the story?
4: Yeah. I mean, there were so many elements to use. Like the other thing that happened in the middle of the story was the hacking group Anonymous got involved and decided to blow it wide open. They took that YouTube video and pushed it to media channels and to their own 2 million plus followers and really created this viral sensation with that video and and what you're just describing the laughing you know it's horrifying but it's not explicit and it had it been actual documentation of the crime right had it been that the assault was happening in the room which it absolutely was not there there's no way that clip could have played on CNN there's no way that it could have played on every media outlet but because it was the laughter and it was so shocking. And we can even see, you know, Dr. Ford in her testimony against Kavanaugh talking about how she'll never forget the laughter. It's a really good
3: point. Yeah.
4: Back to the filmmaking points. We had these elements that were public information. We had elements that we could start crafting an idea of the story from all of the stuff that you could find on the internet. So we found all the, a lot of tweets. We had that video. We had the anonymous hacking video. So we have these pieces that we could start to cut together in terms of things that were just out there. And I've always been fascinated by digital media and social media and how it's impacting and affecting our lives. So here we could sort of crowdsource a bunch of stuff and start to lay it out in a narrative form. And also it's a a crime, right? But where I wanted to go deeper was show the whole community, right? And the sort of culture that enables these kinds of discussions. Like there's a radio DJ whose voice just sounds so familiar. Mm-hmm. And he sounds like every other, you know, mm-hmm. talk show guy who's just going to opinionate about stuff. I mean, he like literally has no facts and he's just like spewing all these rape myths. And he's talking about a 15, 16 year old girl in these really horrible ways. And when you listen to it in the context of the film, it's like bristling, right? Cause you're like, it's
3: very yeah. jarring.
4: Yeah. You know, I knew though, when we're talking, you know, kind of standard timeline. When I heard that laughter, and when I I had that YouTube video, I knew I wanted to start the film that way. And I wanted you to hear that laughter over these really innocuous suburban houses. We think rape happens in back alleys and quote, unquote, bad guys are the ones who do it. These were all like middle class, primarily white kids who every parent would stand up and say, Oh, my kid's a good kid no, my kid's a good kid and he gets good grades and he's, you know, and it's like, here it is, these little suburban houses on a quiet street. And this is what was going on.
3: I mean, it's very powerful. I wanted to ask, cause there, again, there's no real narration to the film, right? So mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. present us with a lot of stuff. And like, so at one point it's clear that you went to Steubenville with a camera and a crew, I assume. Mm-hmm. And you're just going in, it looks like local businesses to just ask people about the case. There's a former football player who's working, I can't remember, a deli, something like that, right? And you're like interviewing him while he's working. What was the reaction to you showing up in Steubenville to do this documentary?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I love that you can see that there's no narrator. And also what was really important for us and for me throughout is that there's no experts. Right, Everybody is an expert of their own experience. Yeah, I just wanted to show up and give people the opportunity to speak in a way that was true for them as they tried to figure out what they thought happened and how they're parsing out this huge dialogue about rape. It took some time to gain trust and get folks to talk, but I'm really thankful for everyone who speaks to me. But what was fascinating and disheartening really was walking into Steubenville, you could tell and feel that everyone was impacted by the sexual assault. It's a really small town, it rippled out, it sort of divided the town. People who wanted to speak out felt like they couldn't because they would be disrupting the power structures. In the town, people who have very little gender analysis were having to grapple with rape and rape culture, and like I just brought wanting to understand and understand more broadly how the crime affected everyone that I spoke to.:
3: Do you think this is a football story?
4: Huh, I think it's a football story. I mean, yesterday, so I'm in Cleveland right now, um, people are asking me if I think it's a football problem.
3: Okay, I get that question a lot, but I, I just as I was watching, I was like, there isn't a ton of football, no, in this. Like there is, like the coaches interviewed by the cops, mm-hmm. and they're definitely football players. So I, I just had a moment as I was watching where I thought, huh, I always think of this as a football story because this is how I came to it. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, but I was like, is this a football story?
4: I don't think so. I don't think it's a football story per se. I think people who play football have definitely told me they feel a lot of resonance with it. I think people that play hockey, Mm. I think it's, it can work on any team where the team or the group has a lot of power and prestige.
3: And I guess then why did you title it roll red roll? Is that, that's what they cheer at the football games, correct? Yeah. Right.
4: Okay. Mm-hmm. A couple of reasons. I mean, the website that was hacked into by Anonymous is rollredroll.com. Ah, that's right. That's right. Okay. And, you know, it has a galloping horse winging at the bottom, <laughs> the aesthetics of the site, but also rollredroll Roll is what Anonymous used to hack into the website as the password when they went into. Oh, wow. So it's not even really hacking if you're just using the name of the website and that's the password. The domain host chose. So there's just a lot of sort of reasons for that. Wow.
3: What has the reaction to the film been since it premiered? Both in general, but do you have a sense of what it's been like for in Steubenville?
4: I think there's a lot of, you know, I'm here right now in Cleveland mm-hmm. um, with some people from Steubenville, Weirton area, and they're really excited to be here with the film. And again, it is sort of divided in the sense that there's a lot of voices that want this story to come out, who think it's important, who don't feel like there was enough accountability, who are glad that the story is being told. Then there are folks who are really concerned that it's unfair. I mean, the thing that I find most ridiculous about the sort of negative response, sight unseen of the film, is a bunch of people that haven't seen it saying it's lies. So our film's going to kick off the PBS's POV season. It's also going to oh, be on the BBC.
3: Congratulations.
4: Thank you. Right. So it's on probably, you know, the highest level public television in the world, PBS and BBC, who do extensive fact checking and vetting. I mean, we've done just extensive fact checking. I've worked with like top investigative journalists who are part of this story. Mm-hmm. You know, we are going to obviously be on PBS in June and... I've made it clear if folks want us to bring the film to town, we can, but I don't want to impose it on town if they don't want it. So I think there's trepidation and concern, but I also think there's curiosity and hope. I mean, I wanted to make this film so that nobody, especially in town, walked out of it and said it's no big deal. Because also the Mm -hmm. other negative comments on various platforms for us are people who are really invested in minimizing what happened. Wow. really invested. And nobody is going to walk out of my movie saying, "Oh, that wasn't a big deal. What happened wasn't a big deal."
3: That's very true. And you've had amazing response to the film from people who've seen it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have it in front of me, but like the New York Times gave it a really good
4: <laughs> review. The New York Times gave us a fantastic review, so did Variety and The New Yorker. And what's been really exciting is how men are understanding this movie. And actually seeing their own behavior, their own socialization, you know, and we did really design this film so that men and boys would stay in their seats and would be gripped by the timeline and gripped by the story. And the visceral energy of it would be in their language because they're the ones who need to see this movie because this is behavior That while, you know, women participate in this culture as well, like this is really about a team. This is really about boys talking among themselves, these male to male alliances, this kind of language, this sort of casual way of talking about rape and abuse. So it's been incredible to see how male critics are just like totally getting it, completely, completely understanding what we were trying to do and having visceral responses to it
3: just mentioned that it'll be on PBS and and BBC, but is there some other way that our listeners can see the film at this point?
4: We're opening in Los Angeles. We'll be opening in a couple more cities and movie theaters across the country. We're also doing a grassroots initiative for Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is this month, April, where you can go to our site, RollRedRollFilm.com, and book a screening in your community you know have a conversation do it in your any kind of group or school that you have or house party whatever you want and then we get to PBS June 17th and then probably oh, wow. a month or two from there they'll be wider released digitally but we will be 100% accessible to everyone who wants to see it June 17th
3: thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down Nancy and for putting a spotlight on this particular topic which you know is one that is close to my heart absolutely thanks for having me Jess All right. To
1: finish up today's discussions, we want to talk a little bit about the marketing of female athletes. Amir, you want to get us started here? Yeah,
2: I do. (laughs) So... I think that when we talk about marketing female athletes, we generally know that it's kind of a uphill battle. I think that what I wanna how I wanna set this up, however, is drawing a line between what it looks like to be a female athlete in international competition versus like in national leagues we have in this country. And the reason why I want to draw that line is because both historically and now, one of the things that we see is women who are competing against other countries, whether it's in the Olympics or, if you know, Serena's playing at Wimbledon or, you know, whatever it is in the World Cup, there's a way in which they can get eyeball- eyeballs on their matches. They can get eyeballs on their game. They can get support. We've seen from 99, they can fill the Rose Bowl. And part of the reason, and I see this historically too, you see it with Althea, you see it with Omar Rudolph, you see it historically in the Pan American games, you see it in international competitions. And the reason why, you know, I think that happens is because rooting for your country is actually this kind of like masculinist expression. You're rah-rawing the United States. And so within that space, you actually have a window of women who have been able to participate and get shine, get endorsement deals. And as we know, endorsement deals are, you know, a really Big thing for women athletes, given the fact that their salaries are so low or amateurism rules, you know, prevent them from cashing in. And so I think that one of the things that happens, however, one of the tricky things that we've seen, despite the success of the national women's soccer team, despite, you know, the success of a lot of our international competitors. When it comes to professional sports within the United States in particular, and Shireen can speak to Canada as well, the national leagues really, really struggle. And so we're right here at the dawn of both the new season for the WNBA as well as the NWSL. Um, And we've seen yet another effort of rebranding for both of those leagues. So the WNBA released a new logo. They released their new cool video i really do like their videos it's a really great video it is really <laughs> compelling and you know coming off the heels of their draft and the nwsl i don't know if you know that it started because there's been very 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 little fanfare you might remember that they broke ties with AE when they did that kind of like we'll put women's soccer on lifetime because women watch lifetime thing so yeah that didn't work and they broke with a and e and they tried to spin it as good thing and then they kind of have heartedly announced that you Yahoo was now the streaming partner, which I actually think if they put support behind it, streaming numbers we've seen across you know multiple sports have actually allowed ratings to improve for women's sports. But you wouldn't know that it's there, right? So the, the season's starting and it's very, very, very under the radar. So, you know, when I'm thinking of you know, the struggles of national teams and what it takes to sell and market sports when they're outside, particularly of this kind of global competition, when they're outside rooting for the country. What does it look like to sustain national teams? And, you know, we, and Shereen, I would love to get your input here on Canada, especially on the wake of the CWHL folding, you know, what, what does it look like to market women athletes, Nationally, and sustain these institutions when we've seen years and years of misstep or actually leagues failing and whatnot. Um, It just seems like the people who are supposed to give a damn about it and and come up with good marketing plans, you know, just (laughs) what is happening? And
0: (laughs) so, I don't know
1: shereen talk to us about canada
0: (laughs) well canada we don't have a wnba team i mean i really wish we would but we don't and in terms of marketing here we don't even have a professional women's soccer team like a lot the best of the canadian players go to the nwsl you know as you know co-prime minister christine sinclair is in portland but this is part of the problem there's no There's nothing that women can rely on financially here. And one of the only professional women's leagues of Canadian women athletes and athletes from all over folded the CWHL. So I can talk about how crappy it is up here. And I mean, I know that in terms of marketing them, we're not just talking sponsorship. We're talking about even amplifying the athletes themselves had to do so much work. And in my interview with Liz Knox about the C-Dub, we talked about this, how women had to go above and beyond just being athletes and do their own advocacy, do their own marketing. They were out there at like kids' birthday parties, like they're just having to do everything. And this is, you know, it's so reminiscent of everything Amira was talking about. And I think it's something that takes time. And, you know, Courtney Sito, who's also been on the show before, has talked about this that in the wake of the C dub is just that you have to invest to make money and there's not that investment in these teams as there ought to be. I want to see, you know, like a perfect model of the WNBA. It's a league that I look to. The NWSL, I mean, they still don't have a commissioner, so I'm sort of like, eh, what's going on there? But like just the stability within those leagues. And then we can talk about the marketing. Like I just still want stable leagues. Like, is that too much to ask? Totally.
2: So, Linz, you just did an awesome hot take on WNBA Draft. And so I really wanted to ask you, they have a new logo with a bun and they have a new video. You know, last year we had, you know, hashtag watch me work or was that two years ago? Maybe it was last year. And so are you buying it? Like, is this is this revamp going to work? Is it, it what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's so tough. The WNBA draft gave me a lot to think about. First of all, I think the logo was fine. I don't have that strong of opinions on it either way. I think usually logos grow on you. It wasn't offensive, which I always think is like (laughs) the first sign, right? Like there wasn't anything that was like, oh, this is accidentally a Nazi sign or something, you know? So, like, yeah, like we said, bar on the ground. But I think it's so interesting with the WNBA because look what you have is a lot first of all, you have a sport that is coded masculine right that just kind of society is coded masculine, and then you have on top of that it's has a it's predominantly black and it has a lot of gay women in it, right, so it's <laughs> nobody really gets a marketing degree in how to promote black gay women right like that's not something that like society is used to seeing. I do think, like, this new campaign, it's kind of like, what's it called? Like, My Way or Video. I thought it was really great. First of all, it didn't just include the biggest stars in the league. Like, it was Natasha Cloud for the Washington Mystics. Amani McGee Stafford, our our friend who we've had on the show. You know, Essence Carson, another player we've had on the show. I just want to keep plugging our interviews. But, you know, it was, it was a lot of really good players. But these aren't the, this wasn't the Elena Deladon and Sylvia Fowles and Diana Taurasi's of of the league. And it really kind of focused on their individuality and their kind of spirits and their uniqueness, which I thought was just like a really great way to do it. I think women's teams and women's leagues and women athletes in general are often stuck as inspiration porn, as I like to call it, right? And as much as I do find all these women inspirational and as much as I do... I was at the NWSL opener last night and of course, almost teared up watching all the little girls watching the players, right? Like I, I, that moves me every time. But at the same time, like these are well-rounded athletes and there has to be space for them to be like, you know, well-rounded people that are not perfect, that are not just bulletin board inspo material. And, you know, I think it's are we a cause or are we a business? Are we Madonnas? Right. Are we whores? You know, women's sports get We're caught. We're boss ladies. We're boss ladies. <laughs> and so this is one of the things, if you listen to the hot take, you heard Natalie Weiner discussing this, which it was so hysterical. But, you know, the, the WNBA had this, this setup for photo shoots where it was these you know, women who were being drafted all sitting behind like a desk with the nameplate Boss Lady. And I just didn't get it. I was like, what is this? I guess it's not the worst idea, but what are we going for here? And and I guess we're trying to kind of play to the Facebook Boss Lady kind of crew that we all see on our feeds. And I don't know, that was tough. What did you think about that, Amira, the Boss Lady stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a... (laughs) I think you hit the nail on the head when you said like people don't know how to market, they don't get degrees in this, right? Like I think that it shows you that as many steps forward as many of these leagues take, sometimes they fall into old tropes, which is like how do we present femininity, right? And understanding femininity to be somehow antithetical to sports. so you have to like really we like glomp femininity on in ways that are legible because you know, it's like before the Olympics when they included boxing for the first time and they were like, but wait, women boxers have to wear skirts or outs, how will we know that they're women? Right. And so I think that it really shows you this dance that happens between what we think is marketable and what sells versus being true to the league itself. And, you know, and there's there's women in the league who certainly love to glam up. And that's, you know, definitely, definitely, you know, one representation. There's women who don't. So how do you... Create a product that leaves room first And leaves space for all of these Ranges of expression
1: And we've seen a lot of this with the WTA over the years And their marketing plans A few years ago they had like this marketing plan That involved like Glamming up all of these WTA players To like the point where you couldn't oh, even God, Recognize that them And it was so something like strong is beautiful Or something, I don't know what it was is, is um, that, that might And have it goes
2: with it. a commercial where they're like Hitting balls so slow One of my students yeah. showed this in a class <laughs> and did an analysis of it it's so uncomfortable to watch like it, they're hitting balls slowly completely lambed up when i say slowly i mean like it's so we'll it's drop literally it in, the in slow motion it's yeah the, it's the most uncomfortable thing
0: yeah um, and
1: it was just this weird thing because if you are a woman like i get it i like to dress up too and i find that there's power in seeing a woman that can do both right but if that's not naturally who you are, like, that shouldn't be the, that's not the only way to show power, right? <laughs> it's to, like, be a tomboy on the court and, like, a lady, you know, like a, a...
0: But why Why do we have to, like, sort of subscribe to anything? Why can't, this is getting back to what you said, we can just be, women should just be who they are, like, as opposed to let's compartmentalize and you have to have fake eyelashes. Not everybody wants to be Sydney LaRue. Some people want to be someone who doesn't wear makeup. Like, all the power to Sydney LaRue because she definitely empowered a lot. Of women, and I think back to Louise and Nassib also the French national team who did that like it wouldn't Say that I'm just going to be a tomboy. Or I'm just going to be this. Just be who you are. There needs to be spaces for marketing people to understand that. Let it was that such a difficult concept. Market in the way that just be your own individual self. Like I don't know. Maybe that people should pay but me to consult. Think about how we marketing. like have
1: trouble just marketing like women who aren't professional athletes, right? Like any image we see of women on our TV are like super coded, and so I think yeah. In yeah. in defense, like it, playing devil's advocate here for a second, right? Like. There's no blueprint for this. And marketing likes blueprints, (laughs) you know, and people with a lot of money like blueprints and they like, you know, things that are guaranteed to work. And what has worked is women are pretty. And we want to show that these women are still pretty, even though they are athletes. And, of course, that's, and that's, that's somehow, not working, though. Amir, wrap us up.
2: Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's also the box that people have to perform in if they want endorsements. And given the ridiculousness of a lot of people's salaries, that endorsement money is their life source, is their livelihood. And so I think, you know, it takes a lot of awareness also to be saying, like, what is the box drawn now to those endorsement deals, like who do you have to be? I think I think all the time of this clip from T-Rex about Clarissa Shields, um, former guest on the show as well, who. Coming off her win at the Olympics is looking for endorsement deals. She's not getting what Gabby's getting, right? She's not getting these, you know, kind of post-Olympic bumps. And so she's meeting, there's a clip in the film and she's meeting with a team who's supposed to help her with her image. And they're like, all right, well, you know, we can try to help you. But the first thing you need to do is to stop saying you like to hit people. And she's just like, but I'm a boxer. Right. And I think about that. I return to a, that a lot when thinking about the box. And then lastly, you know, you brought up the WTA lens and you also talked about, you know, inspiration board. I think that's really great. And, you know, when I think of that, obviously I think of Serena, I think of these Nike ads. Nike is so good at selling inspiration. But I think what happens when we talk about our sisters in sweat? What happens when we tell girls to dream crazy? Right. And we think about it in an individual level. Dream crazy, you can be whatever you want to be. And what we've seen now is that girls can make it to professional ranks. They can go up through Title IX aided institutions, but it doesn't release to anything. There's not viable professional options for so many people that come with health insurance, that come with benefits, that come, you know, come with all of this. The NBA folks just got the NBA people alumni health insurance. And they're still kind of like, I was just talking with some folks who said they're trying to work it out for the the WNBA kind of OGs and alumni. That hasn't happened yet, right? So what does actual structure look like to support these dreams that we're telling these girls to have? You can't dream, you know, crazy as an individual when it takes, you know, people working together when it takes sometimes boycotts, sometimes lawsuits, when it takes unity, really in the united labor force to push some of these changes. So individual dreams are certainly one thing to have. But I also think we have to start thinking about structural ones as well.
0: All
1: right, I've been waiting for this all week, (laughs) actually two weeks because I was out last week. It is burn pile time. Shereen, want to get us started?
0: Oh, do I ever. I had so many things to burn this week, like so many, but that's okay. That's and I thank my colleagues for being patient with me as it's like Tuesday and I have 15 things. So this one is really, up. it's personal because it's always personal. The Asian Football Confederation recently had elections. And I know you're like, wow, that's really interesting. Another organization that's full of corrupt, greedy men that over pretends to oversee women's football. That must have went really great. Yeah, well, it went so great that at least four of the candidates that were elected to executive positions are not only questionable, they're clearly, clearly shady in so many ways. First of all, re-elected was the head of the Pakistan Football Federation and I think that that was really, really sad considering that the women's football team hasn't played a match in over two years, has had no training camp and was not given money to go play in the only tournament in the region, the SAFF. Secondly, Iranian executive member from the Iranian Football Federation, despite the fact that women are still banned from stadiums, was elected again. Then there is a Bahraini executive where there's so much stress about and focus on human rights abuses within Bahrain, also stemming through the Football Federation. It's like a list that never ends of these men. And I think that if you go to even the criticism of that, and then lastly, and one of the most harrowing and disgusting, was a member from the Afghanistan Football Federation, yes, the same one that's actually under investigation for crimes of sexual abuse against players, a member of that board was elected to the executive committee. And there is still, by the attorney general in Afghanistan, an investigation ongoing into the Afghan Football Federation. Why the AFC hasn't literally slammed down and said, you know what, you people are off limits because, you know, you've been investigating for, I don't know, crimes, like, why couldn't that happen? And this just goes to show that the AFC, the Asian Football Confederation, literally continues with impunity. Their members and the leaders of other national federations. Are not held accountable for anything you've got women who don't play women who don't have access to stadiums women who are survivors of abuse but it doesn't matter i want to burn that metaphorically the afc continues to disappoint repeatedly and it's not good enough and i don't expect anything from fifa because again low bar so i just want to burn it all
1: burn All right, I'm going to go quickly. I want to put Kim Mulkey on the burn pile. Congratulations, Kim and Baylor for winning the national championship. Obviously, uh, we had a hot take on that. If you missed it, uh, you should go back and listen. But what I'm burning is the fact that she had said that if President Donald Trump invites Baylor to the White House, that she would go and be honored. That's her quote. This is uh, cringeworthy for many reasons. Number one being that Trump has never invited a single women's team to the White House. So the fact that you think that, well, first of all, I'm going to ignore the fact that he's ignored every single women's team that exists and say, oh, we would love to go is just I feel like it's just kind of spitting on women's sports as a whole and just kind of throwing them under the bus. But obviously, also, uh, Trump is racist and homophobic and misogynistic and his policies are evil and his administration is belittling and discriminating against people all over the world and Kim has a lot of black players on her team she certainly has gay players on her team I don't know if any that are out but and the fact that she would put them in this situation to go to his the White House is just it's just kind of despicable to me I just thought it was absolutely despicable that she, uh, said this and that she welcomes this. And, you know, the reality is now that Trump knows that they'll accept the invitation, he'll probably extend it. And that's just, it just all makes me yeah. a little sick to my stomach. So burn,
2: burn, burn. So, yeah, I was planning on burning that ridiculous, uh, mass said that been showed during the men's final four about Minnesota when they put up a list of professional sports teams but somehow forgot both the links and the white gaps, even though they had all this space left to put it on. Um, It's a simple graphic where you're like, Minnesota has three professional sports teams. Like It's not that hard, y'all. But instead, I'm not going to hashtag stick to sports. I am going to stick in Minnesota. And I I literally couldn't think of anything else to burn except for the repugnant behavior being shown towards Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And I just in my core feel like I need to throw it on her burn pile at the very least. It's repugnant to see not only people who don't like her attacker, but people who purport to support her, but people who have tried to use her and other junior congresswomen of color on magazine covers to rebrand the Democratic Party, who profit off of her visibility as a way to sell idea diversity with their party and yet are completely silent when very real threats are made against her, allow themselves to be distracted by out of context quotes pulled and aimed at her when propaganda videos are being tweeted out by the person who purports to be the president, you know, that very, very, very seriously can cause harm. And we know this because she's had threats against her life. And it's not just harm to Congresswoman Omar that we're we're worried about. This sets a tone. It sets a tone that puts the lives of American Muslims, Black women, many people across this country in danger. It riles people up and it plays on old, entire tropes. It plays on misogyny and racism and Islamophobia. And I'm out of words to say how disgusting I find it. You know, Ilhan said, women, especially women of color, have been told to go slow, to not be seen and not be heard for many years, but we are not in Congress to be invisible. In the words of Congressman John Lewis, we are here to make good trouble. Well, Congresswoman Omar, I personally stand with you as you do that, and I will fight for your right to do your fucking job without people threatening your life and being absolutely Awful. Uh, Burn. Just burn it down.
1: Burn. Burn. All right. It is time now to lift up some badasses of the week. I want to start out by giving a shout out to Hungary's women's hockey team. The Hungarian women won the 2019 Women's World Championship Division 1A for the first time ever which qualifies them to play in the world elites, so congratulations. Finland women's hockey team who will play in the IHF finals for the first time ever. They upset Canada 4-2 oh. to go forward and will play USA on Sunday. That game has not taken place yet as of recording this. This is really, I think, the first time in World Championship history that it hasn't been a USA-Canada final. So it's a big deal that Shereen was even able to get out of bed and join us today, I think. so. <laughs> Congratulations Finland Hillary Knight who now holds the world record the record for the most games played by an American at the women's world championship she has played 51 games also want to shout out a great week for women's basketball as a whole the Arizona women's basketball team won the women's NIT in front of 14,000 plus fans ESPN reported an 11% year-over-year ratings increase for the NCAA title game. And the Seattle Storm inked the largest professional sponsorship deal in franchise history. So go women's basketball. Speaking of women's basketball... Philadelphia Sixers basketball organization, the men's organization, has hired Lindsay Harding as a player development coach. She had previously been a pro scout for the team. She's the first female coach in Sixers franchise history. And it's just so exciting that we're starting to see more and more women added to these NBA coaching staffs. It's not nearly enough, but uh, it's exciting that it's almost hard to keep up with them now. So congratulations, Lindsay. Lorena Ramirez, a Mexican athlete and indigenous woman of the Ra Ramirez tribe who came in third in an ultra marathon in Spain. Congratulations. She also did this wearing Jerecha's uh, traditional sandals. So that's just phenomenal. There's history in Argentina. The first 15 professional female pu- football players in the country have officially signed their contracts. Congratulations to them. San Lorenzo will fully finance eight of the contracts and the rest will be paid for partially by the Argentinian FA. Mercy to Go Cuarco has been named by the Ghana Football Association as the new head coach of the female senior national team. And a very special shout out to Ramesa Khan, who led the Loyola Warriors varsity team to a win for their first tournament of the season. She broke her finger during the semifinal and continued to play, which gave a lot of anxiety to one of our own. <laughs> I won't say who. And we are so proud and we wish her a speedy recovery. Can I get a drum roll, please? Our badass woman of the week is Clarissa Shields, the two-time Olympic gold medalist from Flint, became the undisputed middleweight champion when she recorded a unanimous decision over Germany's Christina Hammer at Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City. Shields entered the fight as the IBF, WBA, and WBC middleweight champion and captured the WBO belt belonging to Hammer by dominating the fight. We have had Claressa on the show before talking with Shireen. So she is a, an official flamethrower. And we want to end with this quote from her. First of all, I'm going to say, I am the greatest woman of all time. Give me that. <laughs> Give me that. Woo! <laughs> okay, friends. <laughs> what is good this week, Amira.
2: Oh my gosh, guys, Game of Thrones. (laughs) Game of Thrones. Y'all, April is really, really messing with my life. I'm literally staring at all of the final projects and papers that I need to grade because there's two more weeks left in my semester. But Game of Thrones is back for its final season tonight. Also, Guava Island with Rihanna and Letitia Wright and Donald Glover is streaming for free on Amazon for like two days. It's a short film about imperialism And labor and exploitation, and music and art, and it's heartbreaking and beautiful, and all of the things. Avengers Endgame is mere two weeks away. Killing Eve is back. On My Black Season 2 is back. All of the things are back for me to watch. I just want to sit and watch and play The Sims and not grade. So I am super excited to that. I have no idea how I'm going to get all my work done because like April has just become a month of like time
0: to like, I don't know. I don't know. Winter is here. (laughs) All right, Shereen. I am off to Portugal with my family next week for two weeks. And I'm really excited about that. Like I haven't even gotten there yet because I still have to get through a bunch of doctor's appointments. Um, I have to get through the kids. Obviously, I have to get through a provincial volleyball final. One of my sons is already done and the next one is coming up. Good luck to Mustafa. And then I literally leave for Portugal. So I haven't even thought about it. Like that yet, but I'm excited about it. Um, I'm also excited about the World Hockey Championships that will be played this afternoon between USA and Finland, even though Canada is not part of it. I'm still all about women's hockey want to support. I just also wanted to shout out when we talk about what's good, universal healthcare in Canada. I spent five hours with my kid, as you all heard. Uh, she broke her finger in a tournament in the match, and we were able to get there, get a specialist appointment all within five hours. And I'm, there's not a day that goes by, you know, as woman, as a parent, as just a member of society, that I'm not grateful for that. So I just wanted to put that out there. And also, I'm really into the baked brownies and oatmeal bars with raspberry from Whole Foods. I happened to stumble into there. And the, I don't know if the cashier was just trying to be nice to me, but he gave them to me for $1.69 a piece instead of $2.99. And he just kind of was like, here, have a good day. Because I think he felt I needed that raspberry oat bar. So I'm just really feeling those. So thank you, world, for healthcare and for those oat bars at Whole Foods.
1: I'm about to go get those immediately. (laughs) Sounds so good. (laughs) For me, I think it's been, I fell while running on Wednesday, like splat onto the concrete, twisted my ankle, bust up my knee. But everything's fine. I couldn't walk at all on Thursday, but now it seems that it was just a sprain. So I am just really, that is what's good because I was definitely scared there for a minute. And so, yeah, I think that I'm excited. The weather's turning. I was at the National Women's Soccer League game between the Spirit and Sky Blue last night. And it was just such a gorgeous night. And it was so awesome to see some great soccer and I feel like I've gotten through the winter now. Like, now I really do feel like that. So that is what's good. Thank you all so much for joining us on episode 102 of Burn It All Down. We just love doing this every week so much. If you want to support us and make sure that we can keep doing this, because it, it takes a lot for us to do this every week, we really just encourage you to join our Patreon community, patreon.com slash Down. It just, just $2 a month, $5 a month helps us so much and make sure that we can grow to the next level where we can really hire a producer that will really help us find new audiences. Also, rate us and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Um, you can follow us on our revamped website burnitalldownpod.com go check that out and thank you to our fabulous social media person extraordinaire Shelby Weldon who helped design that website and get it up and going we're so excited Um, also find us on Facebook at burnitalldown on Twitter burnitdownpod and I believe that's pretty much everywhere we are Instagram you know find us there too we we Love and appreciate all of you, and we'll be here next week.